Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health and sick to fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a courageous and compassionate life. Today's guest is a vegan all star. It's Colleen Patrick Goudreau, author most recently of The Joyful Vegan, but she's written a whole bunch of other books. And she is one of the most influential and compassionate and effective voices in the vegan community reaching out to form coalitions to connect with others and to present our way of life not as restrictive or militantly judgmental but as loving compassionate and interested in the well the well-being of all her new book the joyful vegan is not only beautiful and inspiring. It's also eminently practical. The subtitle is How to Stay Vegan in a World that Wants You to Eat Meat, Dairy and Eggs. And it's full of strategies. It points out the different stages that people tend to go through on their journey and how we can navigate them with skill, grace, humor and above all, self-compassion. And we'll talk all about that in a bit. Just two quick things right now. One is check out SickToFit.com slash retreats. The next one coming up is in North Carolina, June 4th through 7th. And I heard something very important over the weekend, which was not only do we teach by example, as every parent knows, but we also learn by example. So if you've been struggling and you'd like to learn how to eat, how to move, how to think in a way that aligns your daily decisions and actions with your big goals, then come join us. Uh, Josh Lajani and I have kind of cracked the code, not only on how to do it, but also on how to share it, how to create community around it. So if that's you, if you'd like to make 2020 your year, check it out, sicktofit.com slash NC, North Carolina, all lowercase, for that particular retreat. And you can just check out the retreats page for other upcoming ones. Second, a quick reminder that this podcast is supported by listeners and mostly by myself at this point. And it's free for everyone, whether they can afford it or not. So if you are aligned with the mission of this show and you'd like to show your support, one great way to do so is to go to patreon.com, look for Plant Yourself and commit to becoming an ongoing monthly contributor. Even a buck a month gets you a bunch of goodies, gets you a shout out at the end of the show and will make you sleep well at night. All right, so let's get right to it. Without further ado, 
Colleen Patrick Goudreau, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. So good to be here. It's great to finally meet you. And I, I, I want to start with some um, some bonding. Um, so you grew up, I guess, in Livingston? I did. I grew up in South Orange. Oh, how funny. So yeah, I grew up in Summit, but I did move to Livingston. And my father grew up in West Orange. They're from that whole area. And okay. I went to Seton Hall also for grad school, which is in South Orange. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. What did you study? Uh, English literature. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's why you keep on in, in your book um, defi defining the roots of terms. I do love language. I love the English language. I love words. I love etymology. I love putting words together. So yes, it's always been a passion of mine. And I thought I was going to teach literature, thought I was going to be a university professor. And when I was teaching in grad school, I got very jaded very quickly and uh, stopped that notion in its tracks. I see. Yeah. And I love that. I was loving your, um, you know, al alternate metaphors to, you know, two birds with one stone. Yeah. Um, two carrots with one with one knife. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. to say. Our language is, you know, obviously, I mean, we can talk about that forever, but the words we use and the language we use, especially to talk about animals or really anything, really has an impact on how we perceive animals, how we treat them. So I think our language is really instrumental and being mindful of it, I think, is really helpful. Yeah, yeah, we'll get well, I'm sure we'll get into that. The, the other the other commonality I think we have is if I'm if I'm doing the math right, we both read Diet for a New America in 1990 and it blew our minds. Oh, that's lovely. I didn't know that. Yes, that would have been 8990. That's right. You are you are a good mathematician. I, however, studied English literature, so I'm not <laughs> a good math. But that's right. That would have been at the same time. Yeah, mind blowing, right? Yeah, and my mine was um my father died in late 89, December 26th, 89. At that point I had zero interest in nutrition, health, anything. You know, I was and for some reason I was like 3 weeks later I was in Barnes and Noble and I saw the spine of the book and I bought it without knowing why or caring or having ever heard of it. And I read that book and I instantly went, I guess you would call it whole food plant based. Right. Oh, that's so amazing. That's so interesting. I'm sorry about your father. He would have been young, I imagine. Uh, 71. Yeah. So mm. th is that what compelled you to pick up a book related uh, to diet? I don't, no? even, I don't even know. I don't remember. I mean, the mm. other the other thing, like what was so helpful. So we're, we're going to be talking partly about your your um, latest book, The Joyful Vegan. And you talk about like all the stages that you one might go through in the process of becoming vegan, becoming more vegan, staying vegan, getting challenged. And so I remember reading this book and becoming, you know, a complete evangelist. Mm -hmm. It was so easy for me at first to eat this way, to resist all kinds of social pressure, like I was like a superhero. And then it's like, I don't even know what happened. But fast forward eight years, and I'm arguing with my two year old daughter that she's taking the cheese off her pizza. Because you can't just eat the bread and, and, and tomato sauce, you got to eat the cheese too. It's like, it had never happened. Interesting. And I didn't I and I felt like it was a particular kind of crazy that I have where I can get so excited about something and then like not even notice when it's gone or that it's gone. But you kind of talk about that process and I, you know, I felt very normalized. 
by, oh, by reading um, your book. That means everything to me. That's exactly what I wanted the book to do. And we can talk more details, but it literally gives people the, the, the words, the names for the experiences that they have that normalizes it for people. And I can't tell you how many people I have heard from who said, you know, you gave, you, you gave a word, you validated it like Mm -hmm. that that I'm going through this isn't crazy, that I'm going through this isn't unique. And that's everything to me because I think that just enables us to see through that lens of, you know, everybody else is going through this, I'm not alone. And I think that really shifts a lot for people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're in a very good position to do that service for us because you know you're you're sort of like everyone's vegan auntie, like everyone's uh, <laughs> confessing everything to you. It seems like from from the the emails that you print in the book, it's like you you get a, you get a lot of people's souls bared to you. I do. It's really it feel it it absolutely feels like a great responsibility, and I think you know I didn't expect to. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say I didn't expect to write this book because every time I would get emails from people, it would it would kind of make me question things and ask more questions and shape uh, narratives around the experiences we were having. And then I would write podcast episodes. So so it's been a very much a give and take between me and my audience. They didn't necessarily know it. It wasn't necessarily a direct, hey, you know, Betsy wrote me this email and this episode is now based on Betsy, Mm. but it really helped shape the way I was thinking about helping other people, uh, you know, navigate this. So yeah, I, I feel like it is an honor and a great responsibility to be this conduit like you are, like, like I think we all are. Right. And one of the things I really appreciate about your, your writing is how open you are about who you are and what you think that there's there's a trustworthiness that that comes through just what what appears to me from the outside to be a lot of self-work self-reflection like this didn't come easy to you mm. wow you're very you're very observant i have done a lot of work i think uh, i think we all have work to do and i <laughs> you know i try to do my share and uh and i think that idea, because again, I always just tell my story. And I I think that's a powerful way for people to relate to us is for us to just tell our story, connecting with people uh, on a narrative basis, again, going back to language, going back Mm -hmm. to storytelling. Uh, And I've never forgotten my story. I've never forgotten that I once didn't know. I've never forgotten Mm -hmm. that there was a time before I was vegan when I wasn't vegan. And so I think just remembering that has helped me. Certainly, I think stay on course, stay humble and understand where other people are coming from when they come to me with their stories. Right. So that's a good segue into your story. I know a lot of listeners of my podcast know it, but some don't give give us your uh, your backstory to discovering veganism. I sure can. I feel like it is certainly not extraordinary in any way. And I think maybe that's why it makes it helpful for people to hear it because it's very ordinary. And I think it's something most of us can identify with. Um, You know, I was a kid in New Jersey, as you said, in Edison at this time. I was raised in Edison in the first 10 years of my life. Mm -hmm. And I was a kid who 
loved animals. I mean, this is kind of the short synopsis. There was a lot more to say about what kind of kid I was, but <laughs> this isn't the podcast for it. And, uh, and my parents were supportive in my love for animals, but they were not animal lovers per se. It wasn't like we did anything special and we were all, you know, evolved in that area. I helped animals when I could. I, I cried very deeply when I saw any kind of animal suffering. Um, perhaps that might be something that is uh, specific to my story that some people might not necessarily identify with in that they may not have considered themselves animal people. Like I said, my parents weren't. My sister was not an animal person. She didn't cry the way I did if I saw any kind of suffering mm. or just really any did, kind of loneliness. Did that extend to humans as well for you? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. There was a depth of feeling that I would feel when I mean, I am one of those people who cries when other people cry. There's just an there's an empathic uh, response I have. And I do think we all I do think unless we have some element of sociop, you know, sociopathy, I think we, we all have empathy. Uh, I happened to feel it deeply and manifest it. So I wouldn't be afraid to cry or I did mm-hmm. cry. At least I did. Um, and so. So I, I mean, I tell the story in the, in the book, but it really was, I remember how, how deeply I cried seeing Benji, which was, you know, was a movie mm. about a dog. It wasn't an, it wasn't about slaughter. It wasn't about, you know, he was just this dog who was on his own and didn't have a family and didn't have a home. And, uh, and there was some animal cruelty and then a dog, another dog was kicked. And my mother had to drag me out of the theater because I was crying so hard. Now I've had those experiences since I've been an adult seeing movies and I'm making talk about those movies and I have on my podcast the movies that I've had such an impression on me and they are animal stories and they are people stories and there's something specific about someone suffering whose voice isn't heard someone Mm. who's a child who's been abandoned a child who's been left behind a child or an animal who in some way is being abandoned or hurt and they don't understand it. And you can't explain it to them because they're a, ch- they're a child or they're an animal and you can't talk to them. So th- there is a thread that runs there and, 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 and it has been part of my story. So, but, you know, but again, I wasn't so extraordinary. I was the kid who, like everybody else, had animal images on their wallpaper, on their bedspreads, stuffed animals in their bed. Every parent even today uses animal books to teach their children how to read, games to teach them how to spell, games to teach them how to count, all of these ways that we use animals in our development and learning our most basic skills, including all of the moral, the morality tales that use animals to teach us, you know, how to be a good person, how to be a social person, how to be kind, how to be patient, whatever. And so you get these messages that animals are an integral part of your life. And what I didn't know is that I was being fed animals. And I loved meat and I loved dairy. My father owned ice cream stores. We had candy, ice cream, everything you could imagine all the time. And I did love chicken nuggets and, you know, fish sticks. And I mean, we ate kind of typical New Jersey food from the, you know, 70s and 80s. And it was, you know, looking back, it was kind of gross. But then I was eating it. It was ground beef and, you know. Right. Well, at least at least you didn't wait, grow up on the shore. That would have that would have been a level worse. It's true. Well, it's true. It's, it is true. It's really funny. Um, yeah, we were, but we did eat, you know, we ate the veal Parmesan, you know, we went to the kind of st- typical Italian restaurants in New Jersey where there's veal Parmesan and chicken Parmesan and uh, we had beef stew, all of it. 
there was very little that I didn't eat, but I also didn't know. And so uh, it wasn't until I was uh, 19 or 20 when I read Diet Food in America. And like you, I don't remember what made me pick up this book. To your point, I've always been someone who's interested in learning more and knowing more and being self-reflective and, and you know, wanting to improve. And so that book compelled me. To, I mean, I was compelled to read the book. I was also always very interested in wanting to eat healthier and especially mm -hmm. as I was getting older and uh, more critically thinking about things. And so that's probably what it was, just a curiosity and didn't expect to see the images that I saw, which were pretty tame uh, by today, by any standards, really, but just factory farming conditions that I had never seen before. And, and again, to your point, like I, he wrote about dairy and he wrote about eggs, but I didn't, that didn't penetrate. I mm -hmm. just stopped eating land animals. Cause that was the, that was the first thing I had read and seen. And I thought, Oh my God, I don't want to be part of this. So I stopped eating land animals. And then that went on for several years. I did start learning more about vegetarianism, about uh, vivisection, about puppy meals, kind of all these other animal related, you know, forms of exploitation and abuse. And, and it wasn't until several years later that I read the book that really woke me up, which was Slaughterhouse. And that book is an investigative uh, endeavor into really kind of figuring out what the effects of working in a slaughterhouse are on the people who work there and on the animals who are obviously victims. And uh, it was mine. I mean, it was just life altering. I mean, it was mind altering. I was sobbing while I was reading this book. I had, n I just, I was so struck Howard by the by the this the sadism that really takes place in slaughterhouses it's not just that animals are killed it's that it's that we create a culture of violence and it was that awareness that I'm contributing to people being desensitized so desensitized that they do the thing things to the animals that we we don't want to speak of and that was when I called my husband from LA where I was reading this book and said I'm vegan like I don't know what that means but it means I don't want to contribute to this I don't want to be part of this and I got home and that was the beginning of really the story, you know, that led me to where I am, that was 20 years ago, and immediately wanted to evangelize and tell other people what I felt that they didn't know. And if they did, they would make changes. And I think that's what's kept me so hopeful is because I found that people did want to make the changes. And I've just been trying to fill in all the gaps for people to help them do that. Right. It's almost like the, the experience that we go through is so transformational and there's so much internal struggle. It's like I go to the gym, I lift a bunch of weights and then I give them to you and say, here, you can lift them too now. Right. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think it's very natural. And I think even if it's something like, hey, I read this book or I saw this movie and I want you to see it too, we get excited about what we discover and we want to share it. Hey, you know, we do it as children, right? We do it as, I mean, animals do it. They bring us gifts of things they want to share. Like we, we want to share with our tribe members, the things that get us really excited and that, that, you know, make us, make us happy. So I think it's a very natural reaction. Uh, even though where we get into some dangerous territory is when we then become insistent or attached to the idea that everybody else should have the same reaction we do. Right. And you know, you go through like the 10, the 10 stages. Um, and I think I, w I don't want to kind of go through all of them. People should read the book. It's called The Joyful Vegan. It's uh, it's it's out. It's available. 
Um, but there's a few that, that that have sort of been sticking points for me. That I, you know, let's I'll get, let me give me a free therapy session in the guise of a podcast. Um, so one one of the things you really you you take on um, is like, what does it mean to really be vegan? And the it's, it's like the fight over the definition. So let's I'd love to start with your definition. Mm. My definition of what it means to be vegan is that it's the means to enable me to manifest my compassion. It's the way that I can most easily and most conveniently and kind of most directly manifest that desire to not be part of that culture of violence. That's what it is for me. It's not an end. It's not a goal. It's not the it's not the end in itself. It's the means to the end. And that end for me is unconditional compassion versus the conditional compassion I had when I loved dogs, but was eating pigs. So for me, it's the it's the it's the it enables me to manifest my my deepest compassion in my mm. behavior. Right. And that's and that's a high bar, right? Because that's like if you are oh, my son's about to come, he doesn't realize that I'm on a podcast. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that was that was semi compassionate. <laughs> um, where was I? That um, <laughs> the high bar. The high bar. This is why. This is why I don't go live. Um, <laughs> That when you just say, OK, I'm vegan and you have a list of do's and don'ts and a rule and a bunch of rules and an identity. And, and we can, you know, part of what how I was preparing for this conversation was thinking like, you know, we're in the middle right now of an impeachment hearing. We're an incredibly polarized world. We've got suffering on the borders. Like it's not just, you know, vegan, non-vegan divide. It's almost every, you know, every aspect. But the minute I kind of give myself a label, join an identity group and get reinforced for behaviors by that identity group, I'm in danger of losing the essence of what it was that I was trying to accomplish in the first place. And so like, what some, some of the definitions, the, you know, the, the less functional generative definitions of vegans, of vegan and that veganism that we can adopt that actually can block the, the compassion. Oh gosh, gosh, that's a that's a whole bunch right there. Uh, so which which you know which to respond to? You know, I guess the first thing I would say is I don't see veganism as a list of do's and don'ts and rules. That for me is I think one of the things that perhaps distinguishes me from other vegans. I don't know, but I don't see it that way. Like I said, I I see it as you know, a manifestation of my values that I say that I didn't become vegan as much as I removed the blocks to the compassion that was inside of me. Mm. And so I don't need a rule book. I just want to just do the right thing. Right. <laughs> and that's where I get really frustrated with people who, you know, who do kind of focus on the rule book as if there is a vegan overlord, as if there is a rule book to follow, as if there's doctrines to follow. And I think that's where it gets really muddy. And I think that's where it gets, it's a real turnoff to people. Now, look, we do tend to look for ways to identify ourselves. This is, the, this is the limitation of and the function of language. This is one of the things we do is we find ways to distinguish ourselves from other people and also from who we used to be, hmm. right? 
So we do that like that. It's a very natural thing to do. And language is limiting. It can only do so much. And so we can get into those difficulties when we become rigid about it and what the definition is. And that's why, you know, I do think vegan means something. But if we get more attached to the meaning and the definition of what vegan is, rather than the whole reason that we want to, you know, do it in the first place, that's where I think we can get really, um, we can get into trouble and we can lose the plot. So, so I talk a lot about identity in the book and I talk a lot about understanding why when we embrace this particular identity can butt up against our other identities that we have in our lives as a father, as a mother, as a daughter, as a woman, as a son, as whatever it is, all these other identities, as someone who's Mexican, as someone who's Indian, as someone who's Italian, as someone who's Irish, right? These are all these identities, someone who's Catholic, someone who's Jewish, someone who's Muslim, like all these different identities uh, then start to look like they compete with this particular identity. And I think it's one of the reasons family members become like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) As if it's a statement against the identities that you were raised with, right? And so some of the journey, look, some of the journey to just growing up is kind of navigating all of the different identities. Because I don't know about you, but like I don't adhere to all of the identities that I was raised with. I've rejected some, I've embraced some, I've some have changed, but part of, you know, kind of living and growing and evolving is kind of kind of figuring this out and I think that's why things do calm down after a bit of time once you've made this change, but we play a part in how our friends and family members and people around us react to us. We we play a part. Yeah, yeah and I think we have a responsibility to be very intentional about our identities in a way we didn't maybe 100, 200 years ago when we were living in cultures that had stood the test of time, <laughs> right? Like if you grew up in a Sardinian village and, you know, you had your ancestors and you had the church and you had, the, you know, your great, 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 great grandmother's uh, death certificate in the, in, the Bi- in the family Bible, like you say, OK, well, this this may not be optimal, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's sustaining. It's life giving. We in our society today, I think you know. I feel like we're you know on an airplane heading straight down off a cliff towards the bottom, and everyone's going so far so good. Mm-hmm. Like like we have like the identities that are that are given to that are sold to us uh, are, don't don't originate in anything organic. Mm. You mean specifically in terms of kind of the political identities and cultural identities yeah. or even even just, you know, our our our, our um, you know, universal belief in money, in capitalism, in like, you know, what vegan, not vegan, whatever. We're all destroying the earth <laughs> like way, right. way faster than it can support. And so I think, you know, I think I think we, we live in a terrible and wonderful time where we have the opportunity and the obligation to say, who do I want to be on this planet? Well, that's right. I mean, look, I, I think honestly, I think we've always lived in a terrible and wonderful time. I don't think it's unique. I do think we face some things that will have consequences that will be irreversible. Uh, and yet 
since the dawn of time, there have been threats and people have thought it was the end of the world. And there have always, there's always been a time where it was up to us to look at our own conscience and make the right decision. I mean, that's why we have martyrs. That's why we have, you know, the history of, uh, that's why we can look back on, on, on philosophers and, and, and still apply the philosophy from 2000 years ago to today, whatever it is. So I don't know. My point is, I think, uh, we've always had to decide who we are and how we want to be in this world. And so here we are. It's up to us. It's up to us individually. It's up to us collectively. And I think that's the real test yeah. and real purpose of our of our lives. Yeah. And in some ways, the stakes are lower now. You know, if you were the one person who went against your tribe 100 years ago, you didn't have a lot of options. Now we have, you know, you can move from uh, from Edison to Oakland. You can, you know, I can go on Facebook and find groups. I can go to one of 35 different houses of worship within 10 miles of me. Uh, like, you know, we have agency if we if we choose to recognize it. We have agency, we have mobility, and I think that is something that really distinguishes us from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, certainly thousands of years ago, uh, and us today. We have agency, and yet, because we are so intrinsically tribal, that's what starts, we still find tribes. We still desire to find a tribe, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what, again, starts to happen kind of based on this being in our bones is that we start to we 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 distinguish the 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 us and not us we distinguish the you know those who are like us and those who are not and this goes back to what you were saying early i mean that i do feel like is a human compulsion that doesn't mean we're destined to just fall into that trap i think again that's also our challenge is to rise above it but it does seem to happen very naturally. And when you look at what's happening in the vegan community, vegan world, plant-based world, whatever, we, we make these, these tiny little distinctions based on something so minor uh, in order to distinguish ourselves from those who are not exactly like us. We do it in every way. It's fascinating. Right. And, and um, you know, I'll call myself out in terms of like, I can be so judgmental. And I can like it's easy to be judgmental of the people who are judgmental, right? Like that's <laughs> that's my gateway drug into <laughs> it, <laughs> right? And but then you know I I have aligned myself with the health component of of the plant based movement, and so you know when sort of tempers flare, when there's a you know an argument between you know around fat shaming and certain doctors, like. I feel compelled to like have an opinion and offer it. And, and it feels bad, right? Like in the moment, like there's this, yeah, there's this hit of like, you know, adrenaline, I'm, I'm being powerful and I'm getting angry and I'm saying something, but almost immediately there, there it feels bad to do it. Um, and it, and it feels disempowering. For sure. It's one of the reasons why when we feel those ways, we should not get on social media. Like we all feel that way. We all feel that we're right and everybody else is wrong. And that if everybody saw the world through our lens and did things the way we would want them to do, the world would be a better place. We And isn't it? We all feel that way. What a crazy world it would be if we all, I mean, it's, that's how we all feel. And, and so for me, the practice of that and managing that is not to expect me to never feel that way. I am judgmental, just like the next person. 
The question is, do I want to stay this way? And is there a way out of it? And what's on the other end of it? And for me, I think the work that I strive to do is to at least understand the other perspective, that it doesn't have to be mine, but that it's still a perspective that I don't share, that I don't hold, but that it doesn't mean that the other person who holds it is evil or bad or wrong. It's just different. And for me, that's the work that I try to do. And so I am a very opinionated person. Uh, and I share my thoughts and my ideas, you know, obviously in so many different ways on the podcast, in my books, et cetera. As you said, I, you know, I don't hold back. And yet when it comes to that kind of, like when it comes to judgment, I reserve that for my journal, for myself, for my husband, for my close friends, so that I can work out with them how to get on the other side of it so that I don't dwell in that judgmentalism because I think that is at the heart of the divisiveness that we're in today in 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 so many ways and again not different than it used to be this is not new this is not unique however uh what is at the heart of it is uh is just you know I'm right and and you're wrong and I don't want to live there yeah yeah and, and I have felt um, not not to deny any of my own responsibility or culpability but when I am intransigent I get a lot of kudos, sure. <laughs> right? Like I was I was on a, a political forum and there was a someone had posted an article and it's, it's basically a left wing liberal progressive politics like, you know, this presidential season, like who should we support and what? And um, I was trying to make the case on this forum that so I had gone down in, in my town of Pittsburgh. There's there's a, a Confederate statue. There was a, there was fights over and um, there were protests and demonstrations. And I went to one of them and there was a whole bunch of people in their pickup trucks holding Confederate flags. And all I could do in that moment or all I did do in that moment was like yell at them and make them try to make them feel stupid and shame them. And then on this forum, I was saying I was kind of I'm I'm ashamed of myself for giving mm -hmm. into that. I certainly didn't make anything better. I made things worse. I didn't try it. I didn't ask them about their own family or anything. And I started getting this barrage of pushback like, no, you have to shame them. You know, they deserve it. They're a bunch of racists. Yeah. And and we get this also in the vegan community whenever there is attempting to find common ground with with others who may not be vegan or totally vegan, we say, well, let's move this forward. Let's let's improve the lives of farm animals uh, or, you know, let's move away from factory farming to humane, in quotes, for those of you who are listening, um, slaughter, um, that there's this feeling that if it's not 100 percent, it's not worth doing. Yeah, I mean, I remember when. Bush was president. And I remember after 9-11, I remember the rhetoric of you're either with us or you're against us. And I remember really resenting that because, of course, there are gray areas. And of course, there are conversations to have. And of course, I can care about the fact that I don't want, you know, planes to be flown into buildings to kill my fellow Americans or my fellow, you know, human, you know, 
fellow humans, uh, while also not feel like I want to go to war against, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, it's that idea, which is, I find ironic because I do find that, you know, that we can all be intolerant, uh, regardless of whether we're on the left or right or vegan, not vegan, whatever. And that's that notion of you're either with us or against us just doesn't sit well with me, whether it's, uh, someone who's, you know, political ideologies I don't agree with or whether it's someone's political ideologies, I do agree with, it still doesn't fly. And so I try to be consistent. And I, you know, again, I have, this is my own journey, right? And I, I struggle with it as well. I just, I just, my goal is to at least get away from it. I don't want to stay there. And I think it's really unpleasant. And yet, that's what we all do. I think we, we, I think we think that if we give any legitimacy to an opposing viewpoint, that it delegitimizes ours. I think that's ultimately what it is, that if we say, yeah, maybe that's the right way, even though I don't want to do it and I don't really agree with it, that it's somehow giving enough credence to it that it that it that it delegitimizes your own. And I think that is that's the worst thing we can do because we don't then say, we don't give space to, oh, that's your perspective and why? Hmm. Oh, I don't agree with that, but it, but you're, you have valid points, but that's not where I'm going to spend my energy and my time, right? Whether it's the, you know, the things you were talking about specifically to the animal, you know, movement, animal rights movement, animal protection movement, vegan movement, or if it's, or if it's political is we have to bring everything to the light to allow people to have reasons to disagree. Hmm. We need to be able to have disagreement, not for its own sake, but really legitimately to, to, to kind of chew on different ideas and realize, oh, I can take something from that, even though I'm not going to live by it. Uh, it's still legitimate and I can learn something from it, even though, you know, it's not what I want to do because we don't have all the answers. We don't know. There isn't one way to do any of this. That's why we have so many different uh, ideas. And that's the beauty of being in this quite literally this, you know, this post enlightenment era is that there are so many different ways to go about things. And in the world that we live in, in the culture that we live in, especially to be able to try them and experiment and say, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to do this anyway. I mean, no one has the answer. No one knows exactly what, what to do. And we have to be open to everybody's perspective. It seems to me. It's my perspective. <laughs> and, you know, I think you, I think of you as a tremendously effective advocate for the vegan movement. And it's not because you're good at debate. Right. It's not like you have all these facts at your fingertips and you can pull out citations and studies and and destroy other people's arguments. It's because you you model a kind of curiosity and openness and vulnerability that then allows someone else to mirror you back. So I'm, I'm curious how you go. If, you know, you're at a party or somewhere and someone wants to engage you and they want to make you wrong and they want to ask you about your protein and don't don't broccoli cry too. like what's <laughs> what's your what's your uh, game plan? So thank you for that, by the way, that's thank you for that. Um, so I, I often say that our conversations with people begin long before we actually have a conversation. And so I do practice each day, going into the day, having a perspective uh, that, uh, that I have the intention of sharing my story and 
and seeing compassion in everyone such that when I then encounter someone, then I'm called to practice that, right? <laughs> so then uh, so then I, okay, I gotta do it. And so I, I do practice every day on trying to have the perspective that people are good people. So that informs mm. me. So that's al- that's almost I- like, you know, before you go run, you do a little stretching, like you prepare, you don't just go out into the world unprepared. That's right. That's right. So that when you then, you know, trip, you are pliable and flexible enough that you'll be able to withstand that. It's the same idea. It's also it's also just because you don't know what you're going to encounter. You just don't know what's going to come your way. And so if I don't have a foundation of who I want to be and what my principles are, then when I encounter someone, I'm going to be all over the place. So I'm very clear about kind of, I try to be very clear about who I am in this world and what my purpose is. So that when I'm at a party and someone says, you know, oh, you know, where'd you get your protein? Uh, I, you know, I hear that and I could easily say, I'm so sick of answering that question. Go away. (laughs) I could also decide to engage them and try to be right, or I could just be me, <laughs> which is I am going to speak my truth and I'm going to, you know, I am going, my intention is to speak for the animals and to to debunk the myths about veganism. And so I like humor a lot. I really like playfulness. I like people. And so when someone says that, it depends on the situation, but I really want to get to why they, I, I don't want it to be about me. I want mm. to get into their own, I want them to talk about them. So you know, I will ask them questions. What makes you think that? Or, you know, you know, where do you think, where do you get your protein? Or what, you know, what do you, what do you think? Or, you know, whatever it is, or I might, you know, kind of use my, you know, the problems we have are not, you know, the problems of deficiency, the problems we have are problems of excess, you know, all of the problems we have have to do with excess, not deficiency. Or I might say, really, have you ever heard anybody who had Kwashi Orakor? And they're like, what? I was like, quashi oricor, it's the scientific term for protein deficiency. We don't have quashi oricor in this country, but we do have heart disease and all these preventable diseases. So I'm having a conversation, but I'm I'm also exploring what their thinking is and I'm being playful. Sometimes you don't have to say anything at all. All you have to do is just kind of laugh and say, really? <laughs> and they'll go, why have you heard that before? You've probably heard that before. Yes, I've heard that before. What makes you think we don't get protein? Well, you tell me. Draw it out of them, make them accountable for things they say and have a conversation. So that's just kind of how I go about it. I genuinely like people. I genuinely think people aren't coming from a bad place. I think they're coming from a place of uh, certainly ignorance. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but I mean, literally not having the information. But also, I think people just don't know what to say sometimes. So they kind of say the first thing that they have heard, Uh you know, and then if you pressed them you know, like I, you know, people who say, like, what about the animals? We'd be overrun if, you know, we stopped eating animals. They'll take over the world. And I might say, really? Like, really? Do you really think that? And then go, no, but still. <laughs> so just kind of just being present with them and just having a conversation, I don't know, seems to work. And and to your point, my you know I I appreciate that you that you perceive me as being an effective advocate. I mean, it's like how do you measure it, right? Because um, I don't measure it by the number of people who have become vegan from my work, right? Mm-hmm. I I don't quantify it that way. I do measure it by how I 
am and how I feel and what I model. And that I think is what I try to impress upon uh, advocates is it's not about, you know, I don't take the credit for people becoming vegan from my work, just like I don't take the blame for people not becoming vegan despite my work. I just, I want to model compassion. I want to give people the tools they need and the rest is not mine. And so my measure of, 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 of effectiveness is not how vegan I am or how, if someone becomes vegan, it's how compassionate I am and how, and, and how I can model compassion. Right. And that's such a beautiful perspective, you know, across the board when I'm, when, you know, I've come to now teach people about how to be healthy, you know, very, very often people are measuring their success by what happens in a year or five years, or I gained five pounds or my A1Cs didn't go down as opposed to did I was I myself in this moment? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this this dance with our own best self and our authenticity that if oh, what was I a good vegan today? Well, I had a little bit of uh, too much Miyoko's cheese today. So, you know, I gained I may have gained a pound, so I'm not as good an advocate as opposed to like, was I did I eat the Miyoko's cheese in a in a cheerful, loving environment? Or was I sort of like self-medicating because I was procrastinating a podcast episode? Like we, we we have really tender and sensitive and right facing GPSs within ourselves. I love that. That's beautiful. Absolutely. And it's the same measurement. It's am I manifesting my values of dot dot dot? What are your values? What are your ethics? What are your principles? If it's even if it's compassion and self-compassion, am I manifesting that value of self-compassion by like you're saying, like, you know, having, you know, eating too much? What's happening that I'm eating too much? Is it because I'm not being mindful? Is it because I'm trying to cover something up? Is it because whatever it is, right? That doesn't mean you're bad anything. It just means are you truly manifesting this compassion that you say you want to have uh, for yourself uh, or whatever it is, the health that you want to achieve? Is this in in pursuit of that? That's the barometer, not am I a good vegan? Am I a bad vegan? You know, I, I you know, like I said, I don't aspire to be as vegan as I can be. I aspire to be as compassionate as I can be. That's mm -hmm. the difference between how I perceive veganism and how how others do. Right. And one, one phrase really stuck with me from the book. And I think it was part of your story about standing at the fence between the the was it the dove hunt and the um, the, the farm sanctuary and thinking like and the, and the phrase was something like I, I saw these men as vessels into which I could pour my compassion. And I could just imagine being there be, with, with literally at your back, the vegan world. And then to sort of standing and, and like, how hard would that be to fake or to be stoic about non judgmentalism? And how easily would that leak if you weren't consciously working on compassion? That was such a pivotal moment for me in my own journey as a human being, <laughs> not just as a vegan, just as a human being. Because even when you were, you know, like I purposefully didn't cross my arms. Like I purposefully had a stance that was open. Uh, and, and I literally had a mantra that I just said all day long. And believe me, there was there was a lot of temptation to undo that and to say you son of been right i mean so many times throughout the day and i just just i didn't want to be that and so it was it's something that i think about 
so much still. And it's what I try to practice, like you said, whether it's someone who just thinks differently than I do politically, whatever it is, but it, it's a conscious decision and it's not, it's doesn't, and it, that didn't, I didn't accomplish it that day. That was the, the height of my practice, you know, or, or the most challenging, you know, uh, example of that practice, but I, I tried to practice it every day and I fail most of the time. <laughs> so one thing I'm really curious about, um, you didn't name the book, the sustainable vegan, <laughs> the resilient vegan, the persistent vegan, you named it the joyful vegan. Why? Mm. I have always identified as a joyful vegan. I have always tried to convey that aspect of what I love about being vegan. And so it just made sense. And I want to also abolish this myth that to be joyful means to be ineffective or, uh, you know, not vocal or not an advocate that there's this notion that in order to be effective, you have to be angry, that in order to be an advocate, you have to be angry. <laughs> and, uh, and I do count myself as someone who's very active, very vocal, I'd like to think I'm effective. And yet I do consider myself a joyful person, vegan. Uh, and so I wanted to, you know, just convey that. And so there's going to be people who don't pick up that book because they might see it as an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. uh, or they might not want to aspire to that because they might th see it just as fluff. They might see that that that's not going to do any good. We can't be happy while there are bad things going on in the world. Mm. And I try to hold the perspective that you can be both, that you can recognize that there are a lot of things wrong with this world, but there's a lot of good in this world. And I want to be part of making it better, but I'm I'm not going to be miserable in the meantime, and you don't have to be that way either. Right. Well, I'm going to push you a little bit, though, because I understand why you want to be joyful. But the subtitle is how to stay vegan in a world that wants you to eat meat, dairy and eggs. So there's something to me about choosing joyful. That's not just I like being joyful and it's better than being pissy. But there's something about being joyful that will allow you to stay vegan whereas strident, angry, judgmental, other words wouldn't. For sure. So and also don't forget there is the word vegan in there, too. So just how to be who you are, hold your values in a world that's really butting up against them all the time. And so there's a lot to say around why people stop being vegan. And that's that's really why I wrote the book is because I know that there are challenges for people, not only in staying vegan, but staying joyful. And so it's not just about so, of course, I'm saying, you know, stay vegan, but it really is also about stay vegan, but stay vegan joyfully and effectively, but also stay vegan because because there is a risk that if you become so overwhelmed by how bad things are, that that's all you see in this world, that you th that you identify your feeling bad with being vegan, that you're going to stop being vegan. So there is an element of our, our, our joy dictates how we live in this world and how much we can, can sustain our values. Because if it doesn't feel good, what's the point? 
right? Now, there will be people who still do it and stay vegan because the point is to help animals or the point is to be healthy or whatever it is. But my point is it doesn't have to feel bad in order to accomplish those things. So yeah, there is a lot to say about that. And there's a lot to say, bringing it back to your early question about identity around how we identify and how we see ourselves and what we call ourselves also has an effect on whether we stay vegan uh, or not. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also interesting that you chose the word joyful and not happy. Uh, like, I think it's very different. Yeah. What's the, yeah. What's the difference for you? Oh, uh, for me, I think joyful is, is something that is just a, a rootedness and a contentment um, that is more sustaining versus happy that I feel is more fleeting. Mm. I feel happy is just, you know, is, is a, it's kind of a fleeting feeling, but that doesn't mean your core is happy. Joy for me is your core essence mm. um, versus happy, which I feel, I feel like is temporary. Because mm, mm. the way the way I've been thinking about it, I came across this uh, philosopher. I think his name is Brian Masumi, who defines joy as the feeling you get as you're growing into your potential. Oh, I like that. And, and so it's like you can be joyful, even you know. There's this beautiful photo of you kissing a, a cow on the on the cover. Like even if that cow dies and you're mourning, you, there's there is joy in in a certain times of grief, right? Because if you had never known the cow, you could, right? And there's there's joy in walking home after ho opening your heart to the dove hunters mm -hmm. and feeling like, yeah, I was true to myself. Right, because I wasn't happy. I wasn't, that wasn't happiness. I could still feel joy. And I think it's a beautiful way that you're putting it because I could still feel joy in that moment. I could still feel that essence of kind of manifesting who I am, uh, that doesn't mean I was feeling happy. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's holding all that is this world and all that we are and all the complexity and all the bad and the good for me is you can hold all that and still be joyful. And that is Linus on the cover. And he's a boy, he's a steer uh -huh. and, um, and Linus uh -huh. has died. And I, I, oh, I can hold that. I mean, he was such an incredible being. And I remember that every day and seeing his picture and seeing his face reminds me of his essence and, and how much he affected me. Uh, even though he died, which is sad, I can still hold both of those emotions at the same time. And that's, that's what I try to convey. That's what I try to convey. Right. And you, you mentioned earlier and you talk a lot in the book about the power of telling our story as opposed to lecturing, because, um, you know, people can argue with your facts. You know, they can come up with different, uh, you know, no, the hectares of uh, CO2 emissions are better with the grazing, but, but they can't argue with your story. Um, and I think, you know, and the, and the counterpoint of that is that we have to be willing to accept other people's stories. So one of the things that bothers me the most about the orthodox vegans is, and I discovered this first at a vegan blogging conference in 2013, I think, is this idea that ex-vegans have somehow betrayed us. They were never really vegan. And all these, you know, 20-year-old blonde bloggers were just starving themselves. And so, you know, and they'll say, like, I didn't feel good eating a vegan diet. And we're like, yes, you did. Yes. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Oh, it's maddening. It's maddening because in denying that, it's kind of like, look, it's kind of like, look, this is maybe not the best analogy, but it's the one that just came to mind and I'm going to keep going with it. <laughs> it's it's as if, you know, it's, you know, I mean, a, a book that I recommend to everyone is Nazi doctors. I mean, it's the idea that every single person who was involved in the Holocaust was a monster. And my, my, my feeling is that no, they were really human. And that if we deny their humanness, then we're denying that part of ourselves that has the potential to do really horrible things. That it's actually that we're human that enabled us to do that, mm. not that we're monsters. And so if we deny that someone had a difficult time or actually was joyful, really enjoyed being vegan, and they stopped because they wanted to eat meat, dairy, and eggs. If we deny that that is actually the truth for some people, then we deny that part of ourselves that has the potential to stop being vegan. And I think that's part of what happens too, is that we want to brace ourselves against any any possibility that we would have to face not manifesting these values for whatever reason, because we wanted to or because of health reasons or whatever. And so, so we, so everybody else's story isn't even our business. I mean, that's really the point in all of this is that this is just my story. It's my journey. It's my, and so I'm going to tell you mine because I know that you're going to see yourself in my story. And from that, you'll do whatever is the right thing to do for you. And I know you will. And I trust that about people. And that's why I've never said in the 20 years I've been a vegan advocate, go vegan. I have never said go vegan. Not subtly, not directly, not in maybe in a hashtag, right? But but <laughs> not in a in a way in terms of my advocacy because I don't have to tell people what to do. Once I tell them my story and they see themselves and they start reflecting on their own values, they know what to do with that. They know I don't have to tell them what to do. So yes, I think you're right. And we have to hold people's stories and not be afraid that it's going to threaten our own, not be afraid that it's going to delegitimize our own and let people have their story. When we delegitimize them, I think we delegitimize a part of ourselves. Right. So, you know, I think there's a lot of projection going on, right? Like if I'm in a really great relationship and someone tells me they're having a breakup, I don't need to, I don't, you know, if, I don't have to go, no, no, stay, stay, stay together. Right. Right. Like, right. like if I'm on the verge of, uh, of breaking up, then, then I'd have that energy. Absolutely. That's a great analogy for sure. For sure. And it's fear. I mean, I think it is fear. I think it's ultimately fear uh, of the tenuousness of, of a decision. I mean, these, this is a decision. This isn't, you know, I didn't get struck by some magic and now I'm this and to, to not be that would be to defy it. It's a decision I make every single day. So um, it just, I just, you know, I just would rather we worry about ourselves and not worry so much about everybody else. Yeah, I'm, I'm just leafing through the book looking for this part, like there, there was one part of the book that made me cry and it was it was it was a line. Um, and so it was in this this sidebar um, of like the joy, the, the something vegan says this, the joyful vegan says this. And I mean, I'm reading it. It's like it reminds me of like the high holiday litur liturgy, like a prayer book. Mm -hmm. um, but the last one was, you know, and I, I'm blanking on the the parallelism specifically, but um, the last one is one group sees evil, the other sees fear, like mm. the joyful vegan sees fear. Mm. And like that was that really got me 
in the gut, I was thinking about, you know, the Confederate people that I was berating, um, thinking about every time I just want to destroy someone in an argument, every time I just want to take away the right to vote from certain people. It's like, yeah, everything that I see as evil is a manifestation of fear. And and that is a faith based. I can't prove it. Right. It's got, like that's got to be like a a prime postulate, something that, that comes before the philosophy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and and absolutely. And so in me in me thinking differently, where's the benefit? Like you, mm -hmm. you people, you know, to your point about the people on the podcast you were on would say that's not true. They're just horrible. They're selfish. They don't care. They want to destroy everything. And you can hold that view to what end? And if I hold the view that says they're afraid, they are afraid that they haven't been represented. They're afraid of everything they've ever believed being disintegrated. They're afraid that everything they've ever been taught has been wrong. They're afraid what's going to happen to me and to, and to, to my family and to my belief system uh, if I stopped doing this, right? And so still the answer is, well, to what end do I feel that way? Well, it certainly gives me a much kinder perspective. It doesn't mean I condone it. It just means that I see them through the lens of compassion, which enables me to say, I'm so sorry for that. That that makes mm -hmm. me so sad rather than they should be condemned because there are effects of both of those. I mean, to what end? Well, you know, to what end is, you know, literally the mob, which can destroy a lot. The mob is a dangerous thing. Right. And, you know, and just practically, if I have to go to war with them, they've got all the guns. <laughs> Well, that's true. <laughs> like, you know, just Sun Tzu, like, no, don't, don't do that. Right, right, right. For sure. For sure. Right. Like hunters versus vegans. You know, let's use words. <laughs> right. Let's use the same tools. Yeah. Right. So um, one, one um, well, last question, and then I want to get your um, contact info for folks who want to follow you and learn all about it. But th this is a question I've just been having so much fun asking people lately, and it's apropos of nothing we've talked about. Um, what's some music that you really love that has meant means a lot to you that you think other people don't know about and should? Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm one of these people who listens to the same piece of music over and over again, especially for different things I'm doing when I'm writing. Um, mm. So actually, I think I closed it because I wanted to make sure we had a good connection. Um, I love like, um, let's see, Max Richter is a musician I absolutely love. I do love, you know, kind of just this melodic, no words, just this kind of rhythmic gets me into this um, space. Mm. And he, um, he, his work is incredible. Um, oh, God, who am I listening? I've been listening to. Oh, I love um, the Dirty Three. Same thing. Uh the Dirty Three is incredible, and I just you just get into this rhythm in your head, and you just lose your heads, like you just you're just focused on whatever you're doing. At least that's what it does for me. And um and the Dirty Three is um Warren uh, Ellis, and he's uh, he plays with Nick Cave, and Nick Cave is one of my favorite. Ah, you're the second Nick Cave person in three weeks. Really? Oh, he's the best. He's a master. He's amazing. He's just an artist in the true sense of the word. So yeah, Warren Ellis is his he he's his collaborator. All right. Well. Incredible. Yay. 
Yeah, I just I just started listening to him. The first the first line he sang was, I don't believe in a uh, interventionist God. I'm like, oh, my God, that's pop music. Yeah, he's uh, he's 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 a poet. Yeah. Awesome. He's a poet. OK, but well, I great. Know, but Max, I know that you do. Um, and that's that's one of my favorite songs. Um, uh, and it says, uh, I, I say, I, I don't believe in the in the in angels, but looking at you, maybe maybe I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Uh, so how can folks follow you, find you and uh, bring you into their lives? Thank you for asking. Uh, going to joyfulvegan.com is probably the easiest. Right now, that's really the main site for the book. But if they want my main website, they can get to it from Joyful Vegan. Okay. And I'm only saying this in this long way because my last, you know, my name, ColleenPatrickGoudreau.com is my main website, but uh -huh. you can get to it from joyfulvegan.com. Great. So few, fewer chances for spelling errors there. Exactly. Uh-huh. Great. So um, what's what's on your uh, to do list for the next year? I'm in the middle of working on that. I'm actually creating my plan for the year. I've been working on it. Um, I really want to keep getting Joyful Vegan out there. I am really excited. I have a TEDx talk this year. I've been um, aspiring to do that for a long time, and it will be on our words um, and expressions related to animals. Uh, so that's a big one. That's going to take a lot of time. Uh, looking forward to speaking more and continuing the podcast. And I've got other books, but I really want to just kind of focus on the content of the Joyful Vegan and and really just go deep with mm -hmm. that. And then and then I've got many other things to do. Yeah, great. Well, the Joyful Vegan I think is a uh, an infinitely deep dive be because it requires courage as well as skill. Right. So it's 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 cultiv it's cultivating something that we can't consistently have to renew. Can I can I quote you on that? Can I can I use that? That's just all, all yours. That's just perfect. I think absolutely. And we can learn we can we can cultivate courage and we can learn the skills. And that's all I ask of people is be willing to cultivate the courage and and be willing to cultivate the skills. Mm, beautiful. Let's let's uh, let's go out on that. So Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Thank you so much for everything you do for this wonderful book, The Joyful Vegan, and for taking the time to talk today. Thank you so much, Howard. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for having me on your show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Hope to meet someday in person. Me too. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right. I hope you will get a copy of The Joyful Vegan. And also, uh, if you enjoy this episode, reach out to Colleen on social media and let her know what you thought of the conversation. You can check out the show notes for today's episode with links to her book and her website and other stuff at plantyourself.com slash 370. Oh, and Colleen has a podcast. It's been going for a really long time. And if you're into plant-based podcasts and why are you listening now, if you aren't, you should check that out. And you can get to her, that from, I think, from joyfulvegan.com and also from ColleenPatrickGoudreau.com. Sorry about that, Colleen. And uh, from the show notes here, plantyourself.com slash 370. No garden news to speak of in running news did a good 10 on Saturday. And on Sunday, I was stretching and pulled my back out again a little bit. So it was either too much too many miles or uh, too aggressive stretching either way. Um, learned my lesson yet again, and we'll cool it down and wait and take my time and spend more time 
with self care than the kind of stretching I started doing, which was sort of like uh, seeing how far I could bend myself into various shapes, which kind of looking back feels like the opposite of self care. All right, thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more of his beautiful music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mauro, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Bresk, Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, Michelle X, which is, we say, the mysterious Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colin Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selvig, Claire Adams. Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lissert, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Laella, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Steph, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Pangan de Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon. Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan Watt, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakowski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer. Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lennon, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cards, Diane Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Basher, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullage, Laura Heaton, Meg from Amistad, Michelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sarah Robertson, Farn Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Turbin, Barbara, the sport go. Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, and Karen Schmidt for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. See you again on Friday for a Friday Fertilizer. And as always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, A Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Lenane Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashore, Gunn Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>